Many graduates describe their college experience as being transformative, changing the way they view the world and their role in it. In this episode, we explore the role that college faculty can play in creating transformative learning experiences. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Kane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer, and features guests doing important research and advocacy work to make higher education more inclusive and supportive of all learners. Our guests today are Carolyn Zender, Karen Klein, Julia Metzger, and Cynthia Albee. Carolyn is a senior lecturer in biology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Karen is the former dean of the Division of Education at Young Harris College. Julia is the director of the Washington Center for Undergraduate Education at Evergreen State College. And Cynthia is a professor of education at Georgia College. They are authors of Learning That Matters, a field guide to course design for transformative education. Welcome, Carolyn, Karen, Julia, and Cynthia. Today's teas are... Karen, are you drinking tea? I am. And I was joking yesterday that I would have to go to Starbucks and get mine because all I have is lipped it. And I did. And so I'm having some Earl Grey <laughs> in my Hawaii cup. Where I would really like to be during our impending snowstorm. <laughs> Julia? No, actually, I am drinking coffee out of my trusty thermos as I do every morning. <laughs> There's always one, Julia. <laughs> well, at least one. <laughs> And Cynthia? I am drinking a Tazo tea called Glazed Lemon Loaf. I haven't seen that one. It smells really tasty. I've had it. The smell, though, is what really gets it. And Carolyn? I have a hand-picked, hand-dried sweet fern and sassafras tea that my 10-year-old, who is now into wild foraging, blended for me. Wonderful. Well, that's amazing. Can I have that 10-year-old? <laughs> <laughs> I have some awake tea today despite the fact that it's two o'clock in the afternoon. And I have Darjeeling tea today. That's a different choice for you, John. It is. I was looking for things I haven't had recently, so I picked that one. Score one for you. Fail for Rebecca. So we've invited you here today to discuss learning that matters. Can you talk a little bit about how this book came about? Well, we, many years ago, were all faculty together at Georgia College. And it started with Julia and Cynthia started a group focused on course design, and it morphed into what became the Innovative Course Building Group. It was this grassroots sort of bottom-up, we wanted more support and collaborative work towards teaching. And we all began working together through this and doing workshops. And so we decided to write the book that we wished we had had when we had first started teaching. We wanted it to be based in theory, but really practical, have a lot of strategies be really conversational and be collaborative and really encourage people to work together because we found that sometimes teaching could be so isolating that working together and talking with other people was just something that gave us so much support and we enjoyed and we wanted that for others. This book is designed to help faculty create transformative learning experiences. What constitutes a transformative learning experience? Well, for our book, we actually used Mesro's theory and then work really from John Dewey. And our definition is about fundamental change that learners undergo 
if it is a transformative education whereby they see themselves and they see the world differently. I taught teachers and I would always tell them, the person you will be when you leave this program is not the person who you are now. So it involves a lot of reflection whereby you have an experience, you process that experience, and then you make meaning of that. And that changes how you are viewing yourself and the world. So reflection is a critical part of that practice. Absolutely. And that's really what we get from Dewey is the importance of that for learning. So you start each chapter with a preflection. Could you explain to our listeners what this is and why you use this approach and how we could use it in our classes? Yes. So it's one or more questions that we have at the very beginning of the chapter. And I feel like they are just gold. I thought that for a long time. I've always enjoyed having individuals do some thinking up front, really, before we dive in. But then in a recent study, I'm going to say it was probably 2021 around there, students who took a practice test who answered questions before learning the material outperformed their peers who studied it more traditionally by 49% on a follow-up test. So then I thought, well, heck, I think these pre-questions are even more valuable than I ever imagined. And when you think about why, it makes a lot of sense because, first of all, some pre-questions, some pre-flexion gets people in a good headspace, and it's got them thinking along with what it is you're about to introduce. I think it stimulates anticipation because now that you've answered some questions, you're curious to see, are the officers going to agree with me, disagree, what's going to happen? And I think it can highlight gaps in your knowledge that if you answered some questions previously, and then as you read, you might think, okay, well, yes, I said that in my reflection. And oh, yes, I said that. Oh, but I didn't think about that piece. I think it kind of shines a light on those pieces that maybe you hadn't thought of before. So I just really, really highly recommend that not only does it make good sense for a book like this, but that for our courses as well. I use it there. I almost always open with some kinds of pre-questions. And when I have students reading something for homework, I always have some pre-questions that I ask them to answer before they even ever start reading. One argument for it, too, is that it helps activate prior knowledge. It gets students starting to make connections, recalling what they already know, and sets a frame for them to put new material into that framework and elaborate on what they already do know. It's a wonderful strategy, and I should do more of it myself. I advocate that very often, and I don't do it as much as I should. I know one of the things that I've discovered in using some of those strategies is that sometimes a topic is familiar. And so (laughs) familiar is different than knowing. And so sometimes doing an activity like that can help someone recognize that it's something they've heard of before, but they don't actually know that much about it. Absolutely. And especially if it's something where you know that there's going to be some misconceptions or things like where the topic, how it's described, maybe outside of your discipline is not the same as how it is inside or the terminology has specific meanings. And it's so good for uncovering that and so much more powerful than me standing up in front of the room just talking about it. One of the anchor concepts in your book is the principle of teaching towards equity. What are some of the ways in which faculty can work towards creating a more equitable classroom environment? One thing I want to start off by saying is that sometimes because the stakes around equity are so high, we get a little overwhelmed. And when we start to think about how do I teach towards equity? And one of my lifelong goals as a faculty developer is to demystify the concept of teaching for equity. 
And so I like to say at its core, it's the process of humanizing the learning environment. And so what I mean by that is just approaching each and every student as a unique human with their own story and understanding that the story that they bring into the classroom will impact and influence how they learn, when they learn, what they learn. And then I also want to say to these folks, because I was there in this idea, like, how am I going to make the world more equitable? It's such a big job. But really, we all as human beings have the innate tools to do this because we're social beings that live in a social environment. And we have a lot of practice in all kinds of parts of our lives, learning how to create relationships, how to build communities, how to live in relationship with each other. But it can be challenging in teaching because we're working against some pretty powerful social forces that lead us to treat students in our classes as if they're a monolith. In particular, there's a powerful collective story about who goes to college and why. And many of us have unconsciously absorbed this story about who goes to college and why, and it does not relate to reality. It doesn't reflect the reality of who's in our classes. So a big part of what we need to do is understand how to make visible the rich complexity of the stories of learners in our classroom. So my advice is to start with the things you know, which is if this is something that's new to you, the very first thing I would say is just make space and provide value for building relationships in your class. So by that, I mean like devote some time where you're building relationships, where students are building relationships with one another and put some value on that. So if the currency in your classroom is points, make some points that are associated with building relationships. So you're communicating that this is actually a highly valued part of the learning. And if you've already done that, then I should say the second step would be thinking about structure and transparency. So building structures that are clear and transparent for students. So the transparent syllabus and assignments are a great way to start with that. The idea of making what's hidden visible for students. And that helps us unpack those stories because that collective story that many of us have absorbed is the students that are coming to college already know what it means to go to college. And for many of our students, that's not true. So helping make visible what's hidden. And then the third thing I would say, which is like a thread throughout the whole book, which is grab a friend or some friends and sit down and have some conversations about it, get a book, read it together, but find some partners in crime in here to help you figure out how you're going to teach towards equity and what it might mean for you to teach toward equity so you can find some really firm grounding and footing for that. One of the things I really like about how you're describing teaching toward equity is that it's a spectrum and that it's not equitable or not, but you're teaching towards it or you're moving in that direction or you're pushing the needle there. And I think that's a much more palatable approach than something that feels absolute. And we all know it's not actually absolute anyways. Yeah, I think that's actually woven throughout the book. We really try to encourage folks to take the smallest step regarding anything. And then we also very much encourage collaboration. So find a friend to do this with somebody who's like-minded and you're never going to get there. So we're not there, but this mindset that you're moving in that direction is really helpful. And I think that's, like I said, woven throughout the book. I just think so often when we think about equity, we think of it sometimes only in terms of content like the authors I'm teaching, the scientists I'm including, and so forth. 
But we also like to think about equity in terms of the strategies, not just the what we teach, but the how we teach. And I think oftentimes that's an area of equity that people haven't thought that much about. Those are all really good points. So one area where perhaps there might be some inequities is in terms of class discussions, because some students would like to talk all the time. Other students are a bit more cautious and sometimes even think about what they want to say before they say anything. What would you suggest to create a more equitable environment for discussions? I'll jump in and say my favorite for this. And first, I would say practice in very low risk situations first is the circle of voices. So this idea that you're moving around in a circle and everybody has a chance to speak uninterrupted so that you've lowered the barrier to entry and that you're practicing this regularly so that every student has a lived embodied experience of what it feels like to speak before you let go of those structures then they're much more likely to engage once they've had that kind of an experience. And then any kind of structured protocol where students are not bending their cognitive power, trying to think about how they're going to navigate the space, because it's really clear how to navigate the space so they can think about the ideas and do deep listening. Another that we all tend to use is having community agreements, and we'll probably talk more about that. But going through that experience with learners and saying, this is what we are committing to, and this is what we will abide by. And that way, those for whom it's just really, really difficult to speak in a large group won't feel put upon to do that if your community says, we're going to encourage people, but we're not going to require that. Or we're going to ask people to be mindful of how much they are speaking, but we're not going to close them off if they feel the need to say a second thing. And I'd say that sometimes we think about discussions and we just envision like, okay, we're all sitting around a table having a classroom discussion, but opening it up, thinking about universal design for learning and that multiple ways for students to express themselves. So maybe it is an online forum or maybe when is this synchronous or asynchronous so that it's not a, okay, you need to get up and speak in front of 20 people, but maybe you get some time to write. And here's where the preflection questions can really help too, because having some time to think and write beforehand can make for such a richer discussion. I think that preflection also offers that opportunity to transition into a space. You've been in this other place, or I was at lunch, or I had this thing, or I had this other conflict on my mind, but then here's some time to get in this space of what it is that we're talking about, which does allow people to focus more. So you also advocate for a strategy of dilemma issue question. Can you talk a little bit about what this is and how it's a useful strategy? The dilemmas, issues, questions, or DIQ approach is basically a framework or a model for putting the course content or the skills that you're helping students master into a big framing question or a societal issue that students care about. Because we need to provide the why. We need to provide, like, here's the purpose, the reason for learning this. So if I'm teaching evolution by natural selection, rather than just diving into here are the criteria maybe pose the question of which species will be able to evolve in response to climate change? Because now we care about learning about what do we need to know to be able to answer that important question. It helps students connect. It's an equitable practice because they're bringing in their own lived experiences. They can see where the knowledge and skills are useful and they get to be creative and do creative thinking, critical thinking. It's so much more interesting and fun to teach. You can just take it in so many different ways 
And we don't have to look too far outside of our ivory towers to see big societal issues that we're all going to be facing, especially many of our students. And if we want to have hope for those things getting solved, then I think providing students with that sort of training and modeling that in the classroom is just so important. Not just the importance of doing this, but really changing your mindset about what is important content in your class. We've done a lot of work with other faculty on the content doesn't have to be these 9 million things that you're going to be tested on at the end of your chemistry degree, but rather this ability to think in the present and in the future and solve problems that really, really matter, hence learning that matters. I think that's important to point out. So I think it's a jazzy name that we've come up with for a dilemma issue and question, DIQs, but I also think this mindset is just so important to develop. And students, I think, would find it easier to learn about things that they care about, where they see the intrinsic value of what they're working on. Yeah, because that's all of us. I feel like every other article in the Chronicle or faculty focus, it's like, oh, do we have a student engagement crisis? And it's like, okay, well, how do we engage people? We engage them by having things that they're interested in and passionate about and find purpose in. And that's where you can have projects where students will blow you away with what they're doing and how much work and time they'll put into it because they care. One of the issues that people have been complaining about for the last couple of years since we moved back to face-to-face instruction is what appears to be a lack of student motivation. So one way of addressing it is asking students to work on things that they find interesting and that they can see the value of. Are there any other strategies to increase student engagement and motivation? Well, I want to start by saying that I really think the decline is real. When I've been at national conferences and just talking to faculty from all over, it just seems like it's what is on everyone's mind. I have absolutely seen it. It's interesting to think about why is there this decline? Some of the students I've talked to have said it's just really hard for them to pay attention for such long stretches of time when they got used to only paying attention maybe for short periods of time. I think some began to question the importance of learning at all, especially in high schools. There were often times where teachers were told the students do anything at all past them. And so what message did that send to our students? But a couple of really interesting things I've heard from students recently. One student said to me, Sometimes I don't think you professors recognize that these cutesy assignments you give us aren't really preparing us for the future. And so I feel like anything that helps students better face uncertainty, deal with authentic problems as opposed to ones that we've kind of created in the classroom, those make a really big difference. And then, of course, some of my graduate students told me this. They had been undergraduates when the pandemic hit. They said, during the pandemic, we learned to cheat. We learned to cheat well. They were just right up front about it. And these are excellent students. And now we've, of course, got ChatGPT, which makes it even easier if you want to cheat. And that's something I've been studying a lot. And through studying ChatGPT, oddly, where I came out after weeks and weeks of study was that student valuing the learning is everything. Students valuing the learning is everything. It's the answer. It's the foundational answer. And so the learning must matter. And so I've been thinking a lot about what we know about intrinsic motivation and what makes someone value learning. They value learning when they have more autonomy. How can we increase in autonomy? They value learning more when they feel a sense of mastery over what they're learning. They value learning more when they see the purpose. And often 
the relationship-rich type of classroom also makes them value learning more. So every once in a while, I think, would we have written a different book if we'd written it post-pandemic, if we'd written it post-ChatGPT? And I think the answer is no. I think we would have written the same book because everything in the book is geared toward that type of teaching and learning that is so focused on intrinsic motivation and engagement and relationship building and connecting to the world beyond the classroom. It's almost like we saw this stuff coming. I don't know. (laughs) I had an interesting conversation with a colleague yesterday about a conversation she had had with some graduate students that talked about why the students were in graduate school. And they said, well, I kind of got cheated out of my undergrad. I didn't get the undergrad experience because of the pandemic. And so the motivations that we might assume that are not necessarily real of why someone's in school in the first place, it was just kind of interesting to hear the perspective that they're not here necessarily to get a particular kind of experience they feel like they didn't get. So finding a way to get them to value the learning is really important. And knowing they're not here because they are motivated because they're so excited about a particular topic, which you might expect of a graduate student, I think is really an interesting insight to consider. And I think it connects back to what Julia was saying. We need to know our students in order to understand what are their motivations? Why are they here? And we can't just assume that they're coming in with the same reasons we did. We need to take the time, build the time into our courses to get to know students and have those relationships. I'd also add, if we're really serious about making students the agents of their own education, we really need to look at the structures of how our institutions are set up because they're just so patronizing in every way. Like when students come, there's so many ways in which they get messages about how they are not able to make decisions about what they can and cannot do, that the institution, the professor, that they all know best and that they need to fit themselves in the mold of that. And that mold is often defined by that story I was talking about earlier, that one story about who goes to college and why. And there's a lot of unlearning we need to do in higher education to create institutions that actually center student agency. So we know that institutional change isn't fast and requires a lot of people to push against the current structure to change the structure. And one of the ways we can do that is thinking about our own course as a place that we do have control over. So can you talk a little bit about some of the strategies we can encourage faculty to adopt or practice in the spaces they do have control over that would help us move into this transformative space and move towards equity? One of the ways in which we do this in the book is we do it in thinking about designing learning experiences from a liberatory framework. And I'll back up and say backward design has been a really valuable tool in faculty development and teacher preparation and really has helped change the way in which we think about how we teach. So instead of allowing a textbook or some other driving force to determine what the order is and the pathway for teaching, we've thought backwards about what are the goals we want. One of the challenges with that, I think, leans into what I was just saying is that centers the faculty's members' thinking very much. It's a faculty-centered thinking design process. And so something that we really tried to do in the book is think about how might you de-center the faculty member in that process some so that you can bring in some of those student perspectives 
And so we did this in a couple of ways. I won't talk about all of them because it would take a really long time. But one I want to mention is using design thinking as an approach to complicate that backward design process. So design thinking is an approach that we borrowed, not just us, but lots of folks in higher education now are borrowing from product and software design. And design thinking really starts with centering the user of the design. So if you were a product designer, you would start by trying to empathize with the user. So for example, if you were a toy designer, you'd want to observe children in play and engaging with toys to understand how they engage with toys. You might also want to dig into some research about child development in your target age group so that you could think about developing that toy to be appropriately developmental. And so we translate this in an activity in our book using an empathy map. And the way that we did this, which I think is quite powerful, is we built some composite student personas that tell different stories about students in college, but they're based on data. To build these, I use the institutional data from our institution. And also, if you're familiar with Jeffrey Salingo's student segments, we use those as well to build, I think there are five of them that tell different stories about students in college, their histories or herstories, and also their goals for being in college. And then the exercise asked the educator to center themselves in that narrative and think about what kind of messages might that student be getting from their family, from the college, from the society at large, what kind of goals might they have for themselves? And really think deeply about these before you write your learning goals and decide what activities you're going to do and set up your learning environment. So that process of backward design can really be influenced by having a deeper understanding of the types of students that are actually in your classroom. I'll just say with a caveat, these student personas were derived from our data and every institution is different. So it really helps to make your own. And from the concept of design thinking, the best approach is to have access to the actual users, which is not always practical in higher education. But another way you might do this is to interview students who've been through your class to think about a redesign. You might interview them to understand how they engage with the material. And this is a great way to use an assessment technique through an empathy map. Could I add a couple of things? One is about the process and why we liked this design process, and that is iterative. And the more I talk, the more I've realized, oh, everything is just iterative. And so I really like that we get to embrace that and realize that, okay, it'll be different next time. It may get closer to the mark if I do this. The other thing I was going to comment on is, and we've all done this as well, so it's not always practical to design the course, but sometimes co-designing with students is really, really powerful. And we've tried to take advantage of that when we have that opportunity, just again, to send that message like, it's not about the professor's experience, it's about the learner's experience. Even taking little pieces and co-designing them. I taught a general chemistry class for years and years, and I had a rubric for the final grade, and we just co-designed that every year. But it was the only thing we co-designed because we didn't have time to do the whole course, but that was a pretty powerful thing to co-design at the beginning. As a designer, I appreciate everybody talking about design thinking. (laughs) 
took us a while to get there. And when we think about higher ed, but it makes so much sense. Who do we really want to be thinking about? And it's the learner and their experience. And I often think about the who that we're designing for, and that all too often novice professors, I find, tend to design for a younger version of themselves. Older professors tend to design for kind of an average student. And then every once in a while, someone is designing for an anomaly where they had a student the previous semester who did something terrible and now they're redesigning the course so that never happens again. And I think any one of those can be problematic and that we're often better off trying to design with a variety of students in mind and not just a single concept. You mean we don't have just one student? It turns out we don't, (laughs) but that would be nice. It would be a lot easier. Getting specific is important here. The generalities are, I think, the problem. And so what the personas do is they provide some really specific cases to think towards. So you're not thinking in general about a group of people that's morphed together, but you've got like one of them is Jawan and he's a military veteran and he can only go to school part time and he needs to work two days a week. Just getting those details in your mind when you're thinking about the design are really, really valuable. Might it be helpful also to get data from your specific students, do a survey of them, asking about their life experiences, about what has worked well for them in the past and what challenges they've had in prior classes or where things didn't work so well, so that you can address some of those in designing your course, perhaps co-designing or at least responding to the students' expressed concerns. There's so much information there and it helps going back to building those relationships. They want to be able to talk about who they are, especially if they see that you're responding to their feedback and changing something because of it. That models such awesome behavior. And if you know some of the things your students are interested in, you can use that sometimes to design activities that may appeal to the specific mix of students you have in your class. So you're not teaching to that generic student, you're working with the actual students in your class. You could design even the assessments around those students sitting in front of you. What? (laughs) Tell me more about that. (laughs) When we get into assessment, and this is where when we were writing and it was this collaborative writing process where I learned so much from Julia, Karen, and Cynthia about this. And I feel like assessment is the area where there's so much I can do personally in my own courses, but also where I look at like, that's where we can have some of the biggest impact because I think our assessment practices have not been well designed and we have done harm and we need to fix that. And I think we advocate for connected assessments. So assessments where they are aligned with learning outcomes, of course, but also working and designing for the whole student. So they're holistic, they're affirming. So we're not trying to be punitive. We're not trying to like, here, let's go in looking for the mistakes, but we're looking at, hey, where's the growth happening? Where's the learning? And highlighting that and being so much more focused on giving feedback and process and here's how you're going and here's how you move forward and not just like, okay, here's the percentage and you should know what to do with that because turns out most of us don't. And being able to have authentic experiences and and like was mentioned earlier, being really transparent, having examples, having models, being really clear about here are the steps because if we have okay, here's a project, you're going to write a lab report, but I don't describe actually what goes into that and what are the steps and how to do it. Well, then I really shouldn't be surprised when the final products are not awesome because I didn't provide enough scaffolding to get there. Then this is some place where I'm still doing a lot of work here, thinking about my values in teaching and how if I'm looking at that, now for me, it might be that 
grading table on the syllabus, like here's where the points are, here's where things are coming from. How does that align with my values? How does that align with the message that I want to send students and where we can being as intentional there as possible and talking to students about what is the message they're getting? Because what I am intending might not be what is being communicated. And then where we can really thinking about and being open to taking a risk with some alternative grading strategies. Maybe it's ungrading, maybe it's specifications grading, but there are so many more resources and great smart people doing so much work in this area. And every single one I've ever talked to or reached out to is always super excited and willing to share their ideas and share what worked and what didn't, because it can just really change the entire feeling in a classroom when we take away the power of grades, because they've really been used to stop learning and oppress in many cases. And if we get rid of that, it really opens up the space for some honest relationships. Yeah, unfortunately, you have to end a book at a certain point and publish it, it turns out. And one of the things that we didn't really get to talk a lot in the book about was ungrading. We got more into it right after the book came out. But that's where having a website that goes along with the book has been such a great help because we were able to put so many fantastic resources about ungrading or minimizing grades on that website. And that made me feel a lot better because for myself personally, Getting involved with ungrading has been one of the most important things I've ever done for my teaching. No one told me it was going to change everything. I thought it was just going to change this one little piece, but it changed everything. One of the things that I've tried to do with the ungrading is to share with learners, mine's a view. It's not the only view. And I never want to be punitive with grading. If you feel like I'm punishing you with grades, please, we need to talk so that I can know more about your assets, know more about your desires, and help you head in the right direction, not punish you because you don't know something. It's like, that's what learning is. And so that's just been a practice of mine. We'll share a link to the website for the book in the show notes so that people can explore some of the additional resources there. One of the things you advocate throughout the book is the use of active learning approaches, but you also note that you should probably expect some pushback from students. What are some of the most effective ways of addressing the pushback from students who prefer learning by being lectured at so they can sit there passively without having to actively think about the content? One strategy actually you can use is to be upfront about it. So students in this course before, when I've used these things, some of them really don't like it. They're very uncomfortable. So I just want to tell you that I'm aware of that. And that's actually a point where I bring in that idea that I don't wish to be punitive regarding assessment. You're going to have as much say in this as I do. So the other thing is to share the literature and the research. And again, since I primarily teach people who are going to be teachers, they really need to know about what the literature has to say, what the research has to say about learning. And it occurs when there's some space between absolute comfort and absolute chaos or uncertainty. There's going to be some uncertainty. So we always try to share that with learners as well so that they can go back and tap into that research. Another thing that we really try to do is to use self-assessment and reflection as much as possible so that you're letting us know where are the ways that you are growing. I may not be aware of all the things that are changing in you. And if you are able to inform me of that, 
that's a much more informative approach than, okay, I'm going to do all of the assessment. We had to learn this ourselves (laughs) to start expecting the pushback. And then they think that you don't like them because you're not teaching the way that they prefer and emphasizing that collective, how we're all changing, how we're all growing here, I think is another approach that you can take. I would also add just tapping into their lived experience of learning something new. And often they can really embody that if it's not something about school. So like, are you good at tennis? What did it feel like when you first picked up a racket? Or did you try and learn something and give up on it? Why was that? So understanding that actually getting really good at something does have this period of discomfort before it becomes a regular part of your life so that you understand that that is actually getting you to a point where you're going to be a different person and transform. A friend of mine noted that her students at first, they said their fear was that the assessments weren't going to match the activities in class. And so that made me think, oh, that's probably something I need to say right up front is this is what the assessments are going to look like. Here's how what we're doing in class is going to feed into that. Because I can see where there may have been professors they had in the past who taught in a way that was very active, but then assessed in a way that was very passive. And students might have had trouble making the match. Well, there's been so much great insight in this conversation today. So thank you so much for that. We always wrap up by asking, what's next? Well, that's an exciting question for us. And I actually want to start by talking a little bit about how we ended the book. Because a thread in the book that we haven't talked too much about is really focusing on the educator's identity development as an educator being a really critical piece of this whole journey. So what you're putting together for students and doing for students may often feel like it's just all work that's flowing out of you. But also a very important part of that is your own development over time. And so our last chapter is called Your Turn self and collective efficacy. And it was really important to us to end by saying to educators, it's important to think about who you are as an educator and invest in yourself that way. So that's one thing that I just wanted to put out there and make sure that people understood that that was a value for us. And in terms of what's next for us is we are really, really, really excited about launching a course design institute that's based on the book, which we're going to host in August. It's August 4th to 7th. It's called Learning That Matters, the Course Design Institute. It'll be here in Olympia, Washington, which is a really lovely place to be in August. And we're at Evergreen State College, which is a college in the woods. It's very beautiful. We have a farm and a beach. And we're very lucky. But The idea is to have an immersive, collaborative environment to design or redesign the courses that you're going to teach in the next fall. And to do that with people who are not necessarily at your institution, to get a variety of voices and feedbacks. We'll have a lot of time for you to work on your own, but also a lot of time to talk with people from different kinds of institutions who are working on different kinds of problems, teaching different kinds of courses to build that interdisciplinary approach to the work that you are doing in your classroom and also help you build a wider community. So this is something we're super, super excited about. And we will share that link with you so you can put it in the show notes. And then as a little bit of a teaser, we're doing a free virtual workshop on May 9th. This is at 9 o'clock Pacific time, which is noon Eastern time. 
It's called Making Courses Memorable, Beginning and Ending. And I'm not going to say more about it because I want your curiosity to be sparked there. And of course, we're also always happy to zoom in with people who are using the book for book clubs. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to sharing this and encouraging folks to pick up your book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.